morning's passage, or passages, come from Luke chapter 13 and Luke chapter 14. In chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, and in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, you can follow along in your bulletin or your own Bibles. This is Luke chapter 13, beginning in the 10th verse. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. She could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, He called her over. He said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And He laid His hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then He took him, and He healed him, and He sent him away. And He said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask that you would be here with us this morning, that you would work through the proclamation of your word, that you would use your word by the work of your spirit applied to our hearts, that we might turn in repentance and glorify you. Show us, Lord God, the nature of the Sabbath. Show us the meaning of the commandment. Show us, Lord, how we fail. And show us the beauty of Christ Jesus. Make us to cling to Him, to run to Him, to be dependent upon Him. We ask that You would do this, Lord God, for Your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just as a brief reminder, in case this is your first time here, there is a kids' gym in the back of the room, and the sermon is being broadcast there. If you need to go there with your children, or you need to go there to get away and get some space while still listening to the sermon, it's available to you. There's a special needs area outside this window. If you need to hear the sermon with a little bit less going on, that's happening back there, and there's a nursery at the front of this building all of those are available in case you need them. 
You know, I think with many biblical characters, it is often very easy for us to imagine ourselves in their shoes. I don't know whether that's just the nature of our imaginations or we can credit that to children's television shows like Adventures in Odyssey or The Greatest Bible Stories. But for many characters in Scripture, we have a very easy time of imagining what the scene was like. We can imagine ourselves with Zacchaeus in the tree waiting for Jesus to come down the road. Or with David as he prepared to battle Goliath. Or with the disciples as they were in the upper room with the Lord Jesus Christ. But often, one of the characters or sets of characters that we have the hardest time envisioning ourselves in their shoes, I believe, would be the Pharisees. We don't often see ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees. To us, They appear to be a rigid, almost robotic group of people who don't have a compassionate bone in their body. They could care less about the people around them, and they only care for their rigid systems of doctrine and dogmatism. I think often when we read about the Pharisees, we actually find a little bit of satisfaction Because we can always find a character in Scripture to compare ourselves to that is certainly worse than we are. That feels good, doesn't it? Somebody who is in a much worse predicament than we find ourselves. This morning, though, as we look at both of these passages, one of the things I hope you see is not only are the Pharisees not that much different than we are, But often the conclusions they make in Scripture have a sense of logic and even a sense of wisdom, at least at first blush, when we see the conclusions they make. This morning, as we look at this passage and we talk about the nature of the Sabbath, we're only going to talk about two things. First of all, a a biblical history of the Sabbath, and I think as you see the tracing of the idea of the Sabbath through the Old Testament Scriptures, you will see why the Pharisees make the conclusions that they make. You might even resonate with them. And then we'll talk about the true nature of the Sabbath through the words and the actions of Jesus Himself. Okay? So beginning with the biblical history of the Sabbath, you'll probably remember that this is not the first occasion that there's a controversy on the Sabbath. Uh, This is the third and fourth occasion of this very thing happening in Luke chapter 3, and in Luke chapter 6, the very same thing happens. This will be the last occurrence of this issue in the gospel of Luke. We see here in chapter 13 and chapter 14. Now, the biblical history of the Sabbath is very simple, I believe. Where we begin, I think we can begin in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, the Lord God is giving the law to Moses for Moses to deliver to the people. And you'll remember as he gives the Ten Commandments that the fourth commandment concerns the Sabbath. And in Luke, uh, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, the Lord God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. See, in a very short sequence of just a few sentences, the Lord God provides this great reasoning for the people of God to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. He says that on six days He worked, but on the seventh He rested. Therefore, they ought to do the same thing. And not only does He give His reasoning, but He gives a very thorough explanation. This is not only for you, but it's for your your daughters and your sons and for those who are in your household and the visitors who are within your gates. This is a comprehensive command. Command. And He also gives this underlying principle that you are to keep the day holy. Twice, He says, keep the day holy as unto the Lord. The meaning of the command seems very simple and straightforward. But what happens when we introduce real people with real problems and real issues in the world, everything gets complicated, doesn't it? And if you begin tracing the Sabbath and the principle or the command of the Sabbath through the Old Testament Scriptures, you begin to see that Israel has a very contentious relationship with this idea of the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, if you pick up any of the prophets, you'll find that one of the largest issues that seems unresolved within all of Israel, is the breaking of the Sabbath. For the Lord God often speaks in a very condemning voice to the people who are violating His commands. The first most prominent breaking of the commands is idolatry. The people are often involved with idolatrous worship. But the second most prevalent issue that's addressed in the prophets is the violating of the Sabbath kind of surprising, isn't it? Even more so than, for instance, their, their lack of care and concern for those who are in poverty, for the widows and orphans, which is a huge issue in and of itself, the prophets, even more than that, must address the violating of the Sabbath. I'll give you an example. Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet who wrote in the 600s B.C., And he's writing to Israel, and he's warning them of the judgment that is coming. And Ezekiel mentions the breaking of the Sabbath at least 32 different times in the book of Ezekiel as he speaks to the people of Israel. Let me give you one example. Ezekiel chapter 20, Ezekiel the prophet says in the 13th verse, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. You see, Ezekiel is speaking about the the disobedience in the wilderness of Israel, and he's connecting it with their ongoing disobedience. And, And then he says, and my Sabbath they greatly profaned. Then I said, the Lord God said, I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. Ezekiel says, listen, there was a problem in the wilderness. The people of God were in disobedience. And what was one of the foremost issues in Israel was the the violation of my Sabbath. 
And the Lord God said, I will pour out my wrath upon them, for they have violated my commands. You fast forward a little bit, you get this very same idea in the book of Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah? We, we read through Nehemiah a year ago, and I know it seems like it's so long ago. You might be thinking, Nehemiah, did we ever look at Nehemiah? It was a year ago. We looked at the book of Nehemiah. And you remember what happens in the book of Nehemiah? Uh, the people are in captivity in Persia. And they're allowed to come back to Jerusalem to begin the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And they begin with the wall. And in 57 days, they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And the people are jubilant and they're praising God. And things are amazing in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah says, well, it looks like you've got it all together here. Uh, things are in order, I'm going to return to Persia, and I'll be back, okay? And when Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem a few years later, he finds chaos in Jerusalem. And you remember the biggest issue, the thing that bothered Nehemiah the most? The people were not honoring the Sabbath. Remember, he came back and he said, listen, we've built these walls, but the people are on the Sabbath, they are selling their goods in the gates and in the doors to the city, to the people all around them. And so what does Nehemiah do? He bars the doors and he closes the gates and he says on the Sabbath, you will not go out. And if you sneak out in front of the gates and in front of the doors to sell your goods, you remember what Nehemiah said he would do? Chapter 13, verse 21, but I warned them, I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Remember that? I will lay hands on you. It's kind of like the pre-modern version of uh, we're going to throw down. There's going to be a brawl, okay? It's not going to be pretty. Nehemiah must have been an intimidating man. The people repented. They stopped the violation of the Sabbath, okay? Now, the reason I want you to know the history of the Sabbath through the Old Testament is very simple, Okay? If you begin to trace this concept through the Old Testament Scriptures, and if you see the results of the disobedience for the violation of the Sabbath, which ultimately results in their captivity in Babylon and in Persia, you can quickly begin to see the conclusions of the Pharisees, okay? You see, from the 400s, the time of Nehemiah, the 400s onward, Everything that happens in Israel is done under the shadow or in light of the captivities in Babylon and Persia, okay? So everything that is done in Israel now is, is kind of in response to that. Well, we don't want to ever be in captivity, so what do we do? How do we respond to that? You can imagine a, a, a hypothetical conversation between Jim the Pharisee and Bob the Pharisee, okay? And Jim the Pharisee is saying to Bob, Jim, isn't it... Uh, uh, Bob, isn't it great to be back in Jerusalem? Yeah, Jim, I love it here. We're free, and we've got our place, and we can worship God. This is terrific. Yeah, Bob, I agree. And we, we need to make sure that we never do anything to, to break God's commandments again. Yeah, Jim, you're exactly right. And I've really been working on that. Yeah, Bob, what do you think about this Sabbath thing? I mean, I know, I know there's a big deal in the Old Testament. I, I know that Nehemiah speaks about it. Ezekiel speaks about it. It seems very serious. Yeah, we need to honor the Sabbath, Jim, but how do you do that? Well, it says not to work on the Sabbath, Bob, but what is work? Well, I don't know, Jim. 
Sometimes in the morning when I get up and I have to get my kids dressed and get them out of the house, that feels like work. Does it mean I, I can't do that? I don't know, Bob. What do you think? I, I don't know. I mean, to go to the synagogue on Sabbath, you get all hot and sweaty walking down the road. Is that work? Can I do that? I don't want to break the commands of God. You, you see how naturally the conversation comes. What happens in Israel from the 400s B.C. to the time of Christ is that well-intentioned people who who wanted to obey the commands of God began to uh, create more and more clarifications of the law, okay? If the law was vague to them, they began to define it. Very specific. What we get, you you get the, the, the writings of the Mishnah, You've heard of the the Jewish Mishnah, the the additional writings that clarify the Old Testament Scriptures. What we get concerning the Sabbath is something called the 39 Melchot, okay? Don't need to worry about the Melchot part. It's 39. 39 categories of work that is prohibited on the Sabbath. And if you get your hands on this, you're going to find pages and pages, and you will know in detail what kind of work is prohibited. There's two categories that I find comical, so I wanted to share them, okay? First of all, one of the 39 that is prohibited on the Sabbath is writing, okay? Writing is considered work. So I wanted to let you know you may consider yourself a strict Sabbatarian, but you're sitting here, and if you're taking notes, which I hope you're doing, you are violating the Sabbath, okay? Writing, too much work, not allowed on the Sabbath. The other one comical for an entirely different set of reasons. The other one is uh, the extinguishing of fires, okay? That's part of the 39. The extinguishing fires. And later, I think because of some of the consequences, they clarified, if someone in your immediate family is in danger, you may extinguish the fire, okay? But beyond that, there is no extinguishing of fires, not for your home or your possessions or someone else's family member those things are off limits on the Sabbath, okay? So you see, the, the 39 Malachot, uh, to define what work was. Now you understand at least where this concept comes from. Out of a genuine concern to honor the Lord God according to His commandments. Now why do I share that with you? It's a, a biblical history of the Sabbath, a brief biblical history, but I I share it with you because I want you to be aware that the danger still exists for us, doesn't it? It's the same old danger, whether we look at it 2,000 years ago for the Pharisees concerning the Sabbath, or we consider our own propensity of our own hearts. Let me articulate it to you in this way. The Reformers spoke about, Luther and Calvin spoke about the three purposes of the law. The law of God was given, first of all, to curb sinful humanity. And it was given with consequences so that the sinful heart of man would not be as sinful as it could be because of the consequences of the law. The law was, secondly, it was given to serve as a mirror because when you look into the law, you see the righteousness of God and you realize very quickly the sinfulness of your own heart. And the third reason that the law was given 
was for the people of God, that they might have a pathway for the understanding of the character and nature of God and how we ought to please Him. And if you think of the law, uh, John Calvin said that was the primary design of the law. He said the other two purposes, yeah, they're good, they're biblical, but the law was primarily for the people of God, that they might know how to please God. Not how to justify themselves, which is the, the corrupt way they viewed it, but how to please God. Right? And so here's, here's the idea. There's the law, and, and the law has been given to us. And the Christian who is saved by faith is fleeing from sin and fleeing towards Christ and His righteousness. And they have in them the working of the Spirit, which is producing a willingness to move towards God, a desire in their heart that they might be near Him and like Him. That's how the law works. And so we read it and we might say, wow, that's hard. And it gives me a reality check. But at the same time, we say for those who are in Christ, it makes me want to move God, uh, towards God as He reveals Himself because I see His character in this law. If you understand that purpose of the law, then you really understand the problem with what the Pharisees were doing. What the Pharisees were doing is very simple. They're saying there's the pathway to understanding the character and nature of God. And what we're going to do along the pathway is we're going, to start, we're going to build a brick wall on this side. And then over here we're going to have a fence. And there's going to be some hedges and some really good landscaping on this side that's going to keep us on the path. The problem with that is very simple, okay? For those who are saved by faith through grace, or saved by grace through faith, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, they need no wall or buffer to keep them on the pathway to God. They have in themselves the, the, the now born in them through the Spirit desire to be like God, to be near Him. And so it, it provokes a question, right? The Pharisees are building these walls. There are no walls high enough or wide enough or deep enough or broad enough that will keep someone who is not in Christ on the pathway to glorifying God. That is impossible. It cannot happen. And so one of the questions that this provokes is very simple. Do you find in your life a hatred for sin, a repelling away from it, a desire to flee from it, and the desire to be near unto God? for His righteousness. This, the Bible speaks about, is one of the primary fruits of the salvation that is born in us through the Spirit of God. If it's not true, then you've got some more questions to ask. Why do I not hate my sin? Why do I not love the righteousness of God? Okay? But if you do, then you know the law has been designed for you to show you more of your God, to lead you in worship of your God to show you what it is like to be near Him, to share His character in His communicable attributes. That's what the law was designed for. That is a history of the Sabbath. Now, let me say the second point here, very simple. It is the nature of the Sabbath. If the Pharisees had gotten it wrong, then, then what is the purpose and the nature of the Sabbath? Well, let's look at what happens then in these, a quick summary of 13 and 14. In chapter 13, Jesus is in the synagogue. In case you're wondering, this is the last time he'll be in the synagogue in the Gospel of Luke. Never again will he be in the synagogue, okay? He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, 
and there was a woman there for, for 18 years who had been hunched over, okay? And commentators speculate she might have had some form of spina bifida or a, or a degenerative disease in her spine that had caused her this great disability. And Jesus goes to her and He says to her, woman, you are freed of your disability. And Okay, if you've ever been affected by disability, if, you're, if you know someone or you yourself have been affected by disability, you know that this is no small thing. As short as the phrase is that Jesus utters, woman, you're freed of your disability, there's an ironic juxtaposition, right, between the words and the actual deed, for the words are short and simple, but the effect that it has in this woman's life is world-changing. And that's an understatement, right? Woman, you are freed from your disability, and she stands straight up, and she begins to glorify God. It's an amazing thing that happens in Luke 13. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is at a dinner with a Pharisee on the Sabbath. And when you read that, you're probably thinking like I did, you think that Jesus would get tired of going to dinner with the Pharisee. Or that the Pharisees would learn this isn't going to go the way that they thought it would, okay? But yet again, here we are, dinner with the Pharisees, with a Pharisee, on the Sabbath. And what happens? There's a man there who has dropsy. Dropsy is a condition where the stomach is swollen or the stomach cavity is swollen. And dropsy is not the particular problem. It is the symptom of either uh, organ failure or a terminal illness, okay, like a cancer. All right, so dropsy is not the problem, but dropsy is the evidence that something is seriously wrong for this man who's in the home. Now, the man who has dropsy in chapter 14 appears in a pretty odd place, at least a place we would not expect him. He seems to be a fish out of water. Let me tell you why. The passage doesn't say that he's related to the Pharisees, a son or a member of the household. It appears he's not. And for a man who is considered unclean to be in the home of a Pharisee on the Sabbath was a, was a weird thing, something we would not expect to see. And so I'll tell you what, most commentators believe that the Pharisee, it means to entrap Jesus, and actually this is a pretty cruel joke. He has invited this man into his home as the prop, okay? Come on in, join us for dinner. Yeah, we, we don't know you, but we love you. Come on in. And what he's doing is he's setting up a scenario in which Jesus would have only two bad choices. That's what the Pharisee's thinking. And then we're going to get Jesus. You see how terrible that is? Uh, it is a sad joke. It shows maybe the, the, the sinfulness of the Pharisee's heart. And Jesus, it doesn't say how Jesus does it, whether he speaks or whether he uh, touches the man, but he heals the man, and he says, uh, you are healed. And the man with dropsy is healed. Now, the word healed and the word freed in chapter 13 and chapter 14 are both in the perfect voice, which means simply that they are actions that are done and they are completed. Once done for all. There's no ongoing implication. Both of these words are words in which Jesus says, you are healed, you are freed, it is complete. There's no follow-up appointments. Come back in three months to see me. See how the cure is going. This has been completed. You are freed and you are healed. 
The striking thing then in the passage is the response of the people who are there. The response of the synagogue leader, the response of the Pharisee. In both instances, they are indignant. And you can see how terrible the scene must have been, right? They are there witnessing the miraculous work of God, and it is obvious that this is a work of God. The woman stood straight up. The man with drops, he's healed. And if a man with drops, he's healed, I would imagine there's something very physical about what you could see had happened to this man. And in both instances, having witnessed the miraculous, these people who are there, they miss the point completely, and they begin to flip through their 39 categories saying, is this allowed on the Sabbath? Like I, I, there's the farm animal part, and there's baking bread. That's definitely not allowed. And, and, and here's where, how far I can walk on the Sabbath, but where's the category about healing? They can't find it, but they're flipping through their pages trying to figure out, is this approved on the Sabbath? And the absurdity of the situation is exemplified by chapter 13, verse 14. I've underlined it in my Bible because every time I flip through here, I want to see it and I want to kind of laugh out loud at how absurd this verse is. The leader of the synagogue says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. I imagine a scenario in which someone is there in the synagogue and they're saying, okay, come Monday. What, what time? Like an early morning appointment or an afternoon appointment? Casual dress or business dress? How long will the appointment take? Okay. Because the leader of the synagogue is treating the miraculous healing like it's another thing in the work week. It's a Monday through Friday, and listen, when we get done our chores in the morning, uh, then we can address the healing later in the work week. It seems so absurd the way he phrases it. And we know that the leader of the synagogue has no power to heal anyway. So what does he expect is going to happen? Jesus is there. Jesus will be gone. And the people who need to be healed will still be there. Absolutely absurd is the response. But you see what Jesus says in both circumstances. He gives these uh, uh, great examples, okay? Uh, and he begins to clarify exactly how the Pharisees were wrong, and he gives examples of their livestock, right? And he says, in the first instance, if you have an ox or a donkey, aren't you going to untie them on the Sabbath and let them drink water? Of course you will. Of course you will. Every one of you would. And in the second instance, if you have a son or an ox who falls into a hole, won't you get down and help them out of the hole? Of course you will. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you will help an ox, or a donkey, if you will lead them to water, why would you not have mercy on a daughter of Abraham, on a son of God who desperately needs your help? You see, as Jesus does this, He clarifies the nature of the Sabbath. He clarifies the nature of the Sabbath. You see, because this is not simply Jesus saying, well, this is what is permissible or allowable on the Sabbath. This is Jesus saying, this is the nature of the Sabbath. This is the design of the Sabbath. It was designed to be a sign uh, to man of the beauty and character of God, of what it would be like to be near to God. 
That's why, for instance, in Ezekiel, when he's speaking judgment on the people for violating the Sabbath, he says this, you need to keep my Sabbath holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that uh, you may know that I am the Lord your God. The Sabbath was meant to be a sign. Jesus is essentially asking these men this question, which action would most clearly communicate to you and to them the nature of God? A, option one, ignore the suffering, turn my back, and act pious on this Sabbath day. Or option B, the second option, see the suffering, move towards them with compassion, and demonstrate the mercy of God. See, in this, Jesus is clarifying the nature of the Sabbath. It was meant to be a day that depicted to us the nature of our God. Soon after these events in Luke 14, following this, as we lead up to Christ's crucifixion, Jesus Himself would demonstrate the nature of the living God by showing mercy to those who deserve no mercy. So for six days we're to labor in this world by the work of our hand for the profit of worldly payment and worldly goods. But on the seventh day, for one day every seven, by the design of God, that day ought to be one that is devoted to our kingdom identity, to who we are in Christ Jesus, to a celebration of the wonderful, miraculous death of Christ and the love of God. This one day is meant to be one day a week where we, the people of God, we say, oh, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. This is what heaven will be like. This is what the future heavens and earth will feel like. This is what it is like to be among the people of God. This is what it feels like. This is God's day. The day He ref that reflects His nature and character. You see, if that was how we approached the Lord's day in principle, so much would be different. We wouldn't be inclined to say, well, do I have to stop my work for that one day? Do I really have to stop? You, you know what we would say? We would say, do I really have to stop my Sabbath on Monday? Do I really have to stop? If this was the way we looked at the Sabbath, you know what? There wouldn't be many uh, uh, boring and listless sermons, okay? Because preachers in all of the church would be uh, so concerned with the magnitude and the privilege of the proclamation of the Word on the day that the Lord God has set aside for the demonstration of His character that they would be invigorated with the joy of the gospel and they, wouldn't, they couldn't help but overflowing with that joy in the proclamation of the Word. There would be no big TV personalities and tele-evangelists who would be abusing the church. And I know many of you are listening to those podcasts lately, okay? There would be none of that because they would see their role as those who demonstrate the nature of God to their people each and every week in the proclamation of the Word. Brothers and sisters, our time each Sunday, 
Each Sabbath together, the time that we spend afterward in our homes is meant to be set aside, not as a simple inconvenience to us like, oh, God's testing our faith, seeing if we can actually do this, but as a sign of the immeasurable riches that await us in glory. I don't know exactly what heaven is like, but I can tell you this, our time together here this morning is meant to be our best version of that, meant to be our best impression. Do you grasp and understand and experience the true nature of Sabbath rest? Do you long for it each week? Do you count down the days till it comes again? I know I do. Last two weeks, while we were gone watching online, it just wasn't the same. I know I do. This is the Sabbath. This is the sign for you of what God is, of what He has done, and of what He will do for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, our Lord and our God. We thank you that you have given us a day, a Sabbath day, to honor and glorify you and to rest. And we know that you have told us that the Sabbath is but a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath rest that we will one day experience with you in eternity. So we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would work among your people throughout the world each and every week as they gather together to worship you, that you would work among them to show them in an earthly way the reality of your heavenly Sabbath. We thank you that we have this rest in Christ Jesus who is our Lord. We thank you for the mercy that he has demonstrated to us on the cross. We ask, Lord our God, that you would continue to make this true among your people. In your name we ask this. Amen.